dear friend of, of Fritz's and a, a friend of mine, Gary, went home to be with the Lord. Um, earlier, Dee's gone home to be with the Lord. So many in the last couple of years. We start to feel like God's taking us one at a time, and I long for going all at once. So well, I, I, I long for the trumpet call. Until that time, we got a job to do, but man, I, I want to be with him. I don't want to wake up in the morning anymore and hear about tragedy occurring and loss of life. And whenever we hear about things like that, we I try to always, like with the Connecticut deal, I try to wait because I always know there's more to the story. You know, you don't ever get the whole story. You guys are aware of that, right? As it kind of breaks, you get bits and pieces and First thing I heard was a 24-year-old who had done it. But it turns out that's not the case. It was his little brother. His little brother who had troubles, had been diagnosed with Asperger's, a little bit of autism. Kathy and I always say we all got a little bit of autism in us. But she stayed home to homeschool him because the schools couldn't really meet his needs, and I don't know what happened. All I know is I don't care what side of that equation you look at, there are broken lives. Whether you look at the the family of the young boy who, who did this and took his life, or you look at the families who lost their children or the husbands who lost their wives. Yeah. A lot of people hurt. Live in a messed up, messed up world. And occasionally I I get caught on rabbit trails as I was studying the Lord takes me on rabbit trails sometimes and I I ran down this rabbit trail and the rabbit trail you know I was <clears throat> I was looking for some I don't know statistic somewhere out there about hungry people and and stuff we throw away in the, in America and what have you and but the Lord led me to this quote I happened to decide, I decided I was looking for, I was going to look for what would it take if we, how much money would it take to solve hunger and poverty in the world? What would it take? Put a number on it. And I went, it's, it's one of those, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's places online that's like Ask Me, which just normal people talk on, you know, it's not some authority. And uh, the answer under that what would it take to, what's the number to get rid of it? said it's not a number. It's a change of human nature. And I read that and I thought, man, you know, the problem is not a question of gun control or doing what do we need to do for the mentally handicapped or how, do, how could we stop this? You know the answer to the problem? A change in nature. And there's only one person who brings the change in nature. That is Jesus Christ. 
A lot of people try to change their nature, but Jesus is the only one who, as he breathes into our life the truth of the gospel and who he is and the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he says, Behold, I make all things new. Got enough Greek to know all things means all things. So he radically changes us from the inside. Wow, that's so necessary. So necessary in our world. So necessary in the things we face. And as we've been studying through the book of Acts, and we come to this guy, Stephen, who had chose to serve the church that he was a part of and feeding widows. And as he did that, God gave him more and more opportunities to share his faith. Pretty soon, we see miracles coming out of the life of Stephen. People are being healed through his prayers. People are coming to a relationship with Christ for the words that he shares. And whenever that happens, there's always going to be a conflict. And so a conflict arises. He finds himself alone, standing before the Sanhedrin who who crucified Christ, who are angry at him and desiring to, to put him to death. They've charged him with a capital crime. They're not just arguing with him anymore. They're saying, we want to kill you. And so he stands before these men to give an answer. And... And he raises an interesting point. We started talking about it last week a little bit. And that point he raises in, in, in Acts chapter 7, round 52, where he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And as we took a look last week, and we, we, we went through the first eight verses of chapter 7 in the book of Acts, as we worked our way through, here's what we saw. If we want to understand... I don't know about you, but I don't read the Bible to find out what other people did. I'm going to read the Bible to find out what I need to do. So when I look at the story, yeah, they resist the Holy Spirit. My question is, am I? So what do we see in the lives of those who responded to the Holy Spirit? Those are two choices. You're going to respond or you're going to resist. And to those who responded, what do we see? We see obedience. We see God saying to Abraham, go And Abraham went. We see an an act of obedience pouring out. And then we see faith in God. Abraham put his faith in God. Not in his circumstances. Not in what was happening. He put his faith in God. God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a child. And even though he was 75 years old when the promise came to him, and it wouldn't be fulfilled for another 25 years, he put his faith in God. Put his faith in God. And the third part is so important to what we saw last time. He endured. He waited patiently for a city whose builder and maker was God. He waited for a place where the kind of stuff we hear on the news in our world doesn't happen anymore. He waited for a place when all that stuff would be done away with. He waited for a place that was submitted and committed to God. So we see these things working in the life of those who respond. Who respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And the question for us this morning as we take a look at at this next section in Acts chapter 7 is, which are we going to be? Will we respond to what God's telling us to do? To what the Lord lays on our heart. Will we be obedient? Will we put our faith in God? Or will we just look around in our circumstances and say it can't be? 
Will we be obedient, put our faith in God, and have endurance? The writer of Hebrews tells us that you all, we all, have need of endurance. That what we find ourselves in is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a walk. This walk with God is long. And there's a lot of parts to it. And there's a lot of processes that take place during it. And as we, as we <coughs> enter into this place, <coughs> excuse me, we need to know we have to have endurance. Jesus himself told us when the parable of the sower, you remember he cast his seed and it sprouted up so quick because it had no what? Depth of earth. It had no root. And as soon as the sun got hot, as soon as there was a little bit of drought, what happened? It withered up and blew away. We have need of endurance. So if you join me as we take a look, we're going to pick it up from uh, verse 9 in chapter 7. We'll, we're going to try to go from 9 to 29. Lord willing, the preacher will stay on task and we'll see what happens. It says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers. Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Till another king arose that didn't know Joseph. Well, this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. It was at this time Moses was born. And he was well pleasing to God. And he brought up uh, he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God was to deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them that were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his brother wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And at this saying, Moses fled, and he became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Father God, we do thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I do pray, Lord Jesus, that we would have eyes to see. God, our heart, our desire 
is to respond to your Holy Spirit. So many times, God, our philosophies are in the way. Our bias, our opinions, the things we think, they're in the way. And, and as a result, they, they color everything we look at and everything we see. And we can find ourselves in a place resisting what God is trying to do. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to understand that we might apply your word and be found men and women responding to the Holy Spirit. And we give you praise and glory for what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stephen, in his discourse, he he turns now from the life of Abraham, who we, who we looked at last week, and he begins with the life of Joseph. And, and as we look at this, and as we consider this concept, remember that the, the concept that Stephen is teaching and preaching about here is the idea of you always resist the Holy Spirit. We find ourselves, they found themselves, battling against what God was trying to do. Is there a better description of history? If you ever have the unfortunate opportunity to study church history, one of the things that you will discover is that the church throughout history has been a knucklehead, has done horrendous things. We come today, the Bible says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. You know the first holy war, the first jihad, did not happen in the Middle East. First jihad happened in Europe under the auspices of the church. It was called the Holy Crusade. And we went, we speaking the church, those professing to be the body of Christ, slaughtered people in the name of Jesus. And part of the reason we did that is because we had a philosophy. And it was in opposition to God's Word. And as I look at this section of Scripture, I think we still do that today. I find myself often, especially under uh, times of, of election like we just had, <clears throat> lining myself up under a platform that I think is in some way or somehow Christian. And the reality is, I don't want this to come too shocking to you, but... Uh, um, Jesus is not a Republican. So, uh, I know some of you are going to need to hear it twice. Jesus is not a Republican. He's not a, a Democrat either. And he is in... <laughs> Preach it, brother, he says. But as we look at it, here's, here's the struggle. Here's the struggle. We... We accept a platform, a philosophy. The word philosophy means a love of knowledge. And, and to me, a philosophy, so I can kind of define the terms we're talking about, a philosophy is what I do with my understanding. I have an understanding. I gain knowledge as I study the Scripture, as I live my life. And I take that knowledge and it becomes a life for my life. And I begin to live my life based on that philosophy, whatever it is. And, and so we begin to, to build a life based on that philosophy, and, and, and maybe that's good, and sometimes it's okay. But the reality is, if we study God's Word, I don't think that you can 
stand and make a hard, fast line in the sand and say, this is how it always has to be done. And that will mess with your philosophy. We, we read the Lex Talionis in Scripture. The Lex Talionis is the, the law of retribution. You've heard it before, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The time that God gave it, it was merciful for the way they did things in those days, but it, it eventually is going to grow. But the, the Bible tells us that when man sheds man's blood by man, his blood ought to be shed. And that is absolutely and fully and completely true. Then we come, on our pages of Scripture, we come to a, a king who was a man after God's own heart. The, the greatest king ever in the history of Israel. A man closer to the heart of God than anybody else. So close to the heart of God, he's called a man after God's own heart, who was guilty of murder. And, and God didn't require his life. By the way, that's called grace. And as long as we have on the pages of Scripture the law and grace, we're going to have problems with our philosophy because what happens is we tend to run, want to run down one side or the other. And we want to just say, well, then it's always got to be the law and that's how it is. Or we want to say it's always got to be grace, and that's how it is. And if you look at the page of Scripture, that's not borne out on the page of Scripture. You know what's borne out on the pages of Scripture? This is what's borne out on the page of Scripture. That we need to respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And how He is leading. And we need to be seeking Him. And we need to seek His face. The Lord's. We need to seek the, the face of God. Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will give you a comforter. As someone who will come alongside. He's going to come alongside you, the paraclete, and he'll guide you into all truth. The truth, absolute, whole, complete, rigid truth is found in the pages of Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit will lead me through the pages of Scripture so that I might be able to respond to him. But if I hold so rigid my philosophy, my opinion... I hold that so rigid, I start to read everything in this book based on my philosophy. And don't you see? That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. That's why they couldn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. That's why they refused to look at the miracles that were done and the outpouring of the Spirit in their midst. That's why as the Spirit was moving, they found themselves resisting and what God is speaking through Stephen in in Acts chapter 7 is that this is something that happens in every man not just them that we find ourselves resisting what the Holy Spirit is trying to do because we say things like well it was never done that way before why should we have to do anything different we just leave it like it is why can't it just stay how it is we want to be men and women who are willing to respond. And so as we look at this, Stephen, he goes into the, the next 
phase of, of the sermon, and he begins to talk about Joseph. And when, when we talk about Joseph, it's such an amazing story, because here Joseph is anointed of God to deliver the people. He's going to take them from, from uh, uh, starvation, and he's going to provide for them, but they don't know it. All they know is the pain in the, in the backside. Oh, it's my brother. He's always tattling. He's always telling dad. He's always tattling on us. I, I, I love it when I hear people talk about Joseph and they say that. He's a tattletale. There, Joseph, don't, don't start thinking Joseph was such a great guy. He's a tattletale. Okay, I want to give you another way of looking at that. He's not a tattletale. He cared more about how things looked to his father than he cared about how it looked to everybody else. And everybody else didn't like that. That's why Joseph is such an incredible type of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I only do the things my Father gives me to do. I only speak the words my Father gives me. Everything I do is to honor my Father. That's what Jesus said. And then, if I remember right, he said, if you would come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. And follow in his manner of life. What does that mean? That the primary goal in our life is, is it to please our Father in heaven? I have to check. I have to check my attitude all the time. I don't, I don't want to shock you guys too much. But Kathy and I still occasionally have disagreements. Occasionally, it's not very often, but occasionally we have disagreements. And in those disagreements, you know what I discover? Every single time, for my part in the disagreement, I am focused on making me happy. So if you ask me during those times, Jackie, are you... Really focused about pleasing your Father in Heaven right now? Because if you are, your Father in Heaven says to love your wife like Christ, love the church, and gave Himself for her. I hate doing that. And ladies, if we go to the next ones, you're not going to like it any better. Is our primary goal to please our Father in heaven? That was Joseph. That's one of the things that that really set Joseph apart. And I love it as we begin in verse 9. It says, the patriarchs were jealous. That's the the ruling body, his brothers. They sold Joseph to Egypt. What's it say? What's that next phrase say? But God was with him. But God was with him. You ever find yourself in a place where you don't feel God, you don't see God, you don't understand what God's doing, you look at your world and it's all a little bit sideways? Anybody ever felt like that? So if that's if that's really where we are, you know that C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, makes a quote. I love this quote. <clears throat> I love what he said, and I want to share it with you. In light of that concept... Here's what the uncle in the screw tape letters had to say about that. Now, if you don't know, the screw tape letters is, is a letter from a, a higher demon to his nephew, trying to teach him how to trip Christians up. Written by C.S. Lewis, a Christian author. He said, 
Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around at a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished. And he asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. C.S. Lewis said it. The enemy, the, the, the enemy, if we flip it, the enemy, the devil and his angels, their cause is more messed up. When we look around at a world that's sideways and nothing seems right and everything's messed up, but we still intend to be who God wants us to be. And even though we don't feel it, we obey anyway. It brings us to a place of responding. Here, Joseph is sold into slavery. We said, when we talked about the lives, lives of believers in, in, in the past, we say that there's going to be trial. There's going to come upon us the time of trial. It's, it's exactly what happens to Joseph. His life is not just perfect. Down, down, he was dad, dad's favorite. He got all the stuff from his father, but he still went through hard times. He was sold by his own brothers into slavery. Then the Lord blessed him wherever he went, but as he's in slavery there, he's charged with trying to, to uh, rape Potiphar's wife, which was untrue. Potiphar knows it's not true. Everybody who knows Potiphar's wife knows it's not true, but they send him to prison anyways. And he sits in prison, falsely accused, knowing that God has a plan and a purpose for my life, but somewhere it all got sideways, and here I was sold into slavery, now I'm in the middle of this prison. And as he's there in that prison, and as all those charges come upon him, and everybody in prison, you know how they think about him. What are you here for, Joseph? Oh, I didn't do it. Yeah, I know, none of us did. <clears throat> what didn't you do to get here? But he really didn't do it. But the Lord is less impressed by our reputation than by our character. God doesn't really care what everybody else thinks about us necessarily as much as the character that's developed in the man in the furnace of affliction. And so there, in the furnace of affliction for 13 years, 13 years in prison for something he didn't do, sold into slavery, pretty much thinks, I have no idea where my life is going and what's going on. But, but, but don't you see that, that quote that C.S. Lewis talks about and the concept that I believe Scripture teaches is he, he still was obedient, even though it didn't feel like it was all coming together. Still obedient to God's Word. He still put his faith in God and he made a choice, a constant choice to endure. So what did that place him in? A place where he could respond to the Holy Spirit. Not a place like his brothers are of resisting the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we look at their lives. They're not being obedient. They put their faith in themselves. They don't really care about endurance. They want what they want and they want it now. And that puts them into a place where they're resisting what the Holy Spirit's trying to do and God's not able to, <clears throat> to work through them in the same way. But look at verse 10. It says, God delivered him out of all his troubles. What you don't see is the years and years and years 
that took. We read it in one sentence and we think, oh, cool, God delivered him out of his troubles. And that's great. We don't see the time. But his faith was in God. And it gave him favor and wisdom and, and the presence of Pharaoh. And, and all of a sudden we see God raising up Joseph and now he's the second most important man in the entire world. Almost overnight. That's how quick God can move. Almost overnight. He raises them up. Do you ever feel like, you know, God can't fix whatever's broke in your life? Do you know that it's always too soon to give up? Are you aware that, in one word, it all turns around? And what a shame it is if we give up the day before that happens. And the problem is, we don't know the day it's going to happen. So what does it mean? It's always too soon to give up. One more day. One more day. Joseph is raised up second in command. At the same time, his brothers, who are resisting what the Holy Spirit is doing, enter into a time of famine. This is consistent with the Word of God. <clears throat> the Word of God says, you will enter into a famine any time you find yourself disobedient from the Lord. We read it in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, there was a famine in the land. Why? Because there was a... a uh, a famine of the word. There was a famine of a desire to follow the Lord. So God withheld the rain and a famine came. Same exact thing happening here with Joseph. There's a famine in the land. What does that famine mean? Well, it's, it's going to accomplish God's purpose ultimately. But what's it say to his brothers? You and me, we're not okay. God's saying to the other brothers, you and me, we're not okay. You are going in a different direction than I am. Your philosophy, your understanding of the knowledge that you've gained is leading you away from what I'm trying to accomplish in your life by the Holy Spirit. So he sent a famine. What did that make them do? Made them go see their brother, didn't it? So they go and they see their brother, and their brother supplies what they have for him, but he doesn't reveal himself to them the first time. This is going to become important as we look at Stephen's address, because you're going to see Joseph received by his brothers on the second visit. You're going to see Moses received by the nation on his second visit. You're going to see Jesus Christ received by the nation on his second visit. Falls in line with the things that the Bible teaches. Well, the scripture tells us when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt in verse 12, he sent out the fathers, the, the eleven. And the second time Joseph showed himself to his brothers, and his brothers freaked out. Do you remember? His brothers freaked out because the most important, the second most important man in the entire world, all he's got to do is say, Pharaoh, they all need to die and they'd all be dead, right? Lex Talionis says, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You sold me to slavery and I, I was a slave for several years. Then I was falsely accused and imprisoned for 13 more. So let's say you roughly owe me 25 years. So all my brothers, they can go to to prison or they can go work in Siberia or they can go somewhere and do 25 years because well that would be by the law but what, what does the Bible tell us that Joseph does he looks at his brothers and he says you intended it for evil but God meant it for good and he gave grace his brothers 
And his brothers came along and they came in line and they entered into a place and a time and a period of time where they were responding to what the Holy Spirit's doing. But what we're going to see is, as we look on the pages of Scripture, and what you need to understand is there always comes a time. There's a time and God does something different. He mixes it up a little bit. And when He mixes it up a little bit, everybody freaks out. And they think, what in the world? You can't do this. This, that. Oh, what, God, you've never done it this way before. And they allow their philosophy to come into an argument with what the Spirit is doing. We call that resisting the Holy Spirit. Well, the brothers come together the second time He reveals Himself. What's it say in verse 14? Then Joseph sent and called his father and all his relatives, and they came with him 75 people. Now, whenever we study this section on Stephen, a lot of people want to talk about, uh, Stephen says 75, but when you look in, in Genesis, it says 66, and, and which is right and which is wrong. Listen, let me help you not get wrapped around the axle. When we count people, it all depends on who we count. And Stephen is counting 75, which includes Joseph, Manasseh, Ephraim, his wives, their wives, and their children. And it comes to 75. In Genesis, they're not really focused on that area, so they count 66. They tell you who they're counting. So instead of assuming there's a mistake on a page of Scripture, we need to look a little deeper and say, well, what is it? Who's being counted? Stephen says 400 years. They were there for 400 years. But Paul says in Galatians, 430. Well, why is that? Because Stephen is counting from Isaac and Paul is counting from Abraham. That takes 25, adds 25 years on it and five on the other end because Paul is talking about the giving 430 years to the giving of the law and Stephen is just talking about 400 years in bondage. It's not disagreeing with one another, but if I count from one place to, an, to another place and you count from a different person, we're going to end up with different numbers. I don't know why people want to get all crazy over that stuff. If you see something and it's different, instead of assuming it's a problem or it's wrong, read, search, study. It's there. The answer's there. The answer is never going to be on the page of Scripture The Scripture's wrong, just so you know. It's always going to be, I don't have the whole picture. Maybe I need to read. Maybe I need to study. Maybe I need to look a little deeper. 75, according to Stephen, go in. And so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But listen to this, verse 17. Oh, God's going to do something new. But when the time of the promise drew near, what was the promise? The promise that they're talking about is the promise of the land. He said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. But before you get this land, know that your people are going to be in bondage 400 years. So when the time of the promise comes, it's coming around. What's that mean? It means God is about to do something different. He's about to move in another way. He's about to, to lead His people to bring them into a, to a place where He can bring His blessing, but He's going to prepare their heart. It says, when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. So another king arose who did not know Joseph. 
That phrase, another king, it's a, the word heteros. It means another of a different kind. It's a whole new dynasty. Whole new dynasty. People argue, trying to figure out where this is in history. Um, I, I don't know that anybody can say accurately, perfectly accurately. I think this is Thutmosis the first who comes up because that particular guy was a military conqueror. Prior to Thutmosis, the, the rulers of Egypt were shepherd kings. So they got along okay with Israel. But after that period of time in history, Thutmosis comes on. He's a conqueror. They conquer the nation. He sets up a different dynasty. And at that time, everything begins to change. Well, Moses means to be drawn out of. He, he takes a name for himself to be drawn out of the Nile. And this becomes the name of, of uh, the next three pharaohs. Thutmosis III probably is the guy who, who does battle with Moses when he returns. So we see something changes. Something's happening. The timing of God. Have we ever had a trial enter into our life at exactly the right time? Have you ever had a trial come and you said, that was perfect timing? <clears throat> but you know what? If we're honest, it was. Because it was God's timing. It was, God, it was what God was doing. The question is, when that trial, when that, when that difficulty... God said they were going to have 400 years in bondage. When that time comes... When the atmosphere changes, when the attitude of the king is different, when the nation begins to turn its back on you and you, you find yourself in a place where you're despised more than you used to be. And at one time people would look to you for advice on what to do things. Now they want to shun you and think that your philosophies and your concepts and your understanding and your scriptures are, are lame and dumb and we need to put those away. In fact, if you want to really see a nation after that, not not just Egypt here in the pages of Scripture. Why don't you go to, to New York? Look at the billboard there. You heard about the billboard in New York? Keep the Mary. Bury the myth. It says, keep the Mary. Picture of Santa Claus. Keep the Mary. And underneath that is a picture of Christ on the cross. It says, bury the myth. They, they knew what time of year it was when they put it out. The time came, the Bible says, and the time came when the, for the promise to draw near. The promise they were looking for the land. The promise I'm looking for is Jesus Christ. The time came. It was a time of trial, a time of difficulty, a time... Well, to be honest, we don't understand most trials, do we? I mean, does anybody watch the news after Connecticut and say, oh man, I, I perfectly understand this trial and I have all the answers for it. If you do, you don't understand all the questions. So we find ourselves in this place. It's a trial, there's a problem, there's a thing. But you know the word time, and the time of the promise drew near is the word chronos. It, it means it, not just a, a, a season, but a sequence of events. That there's a sequence of events. And what God is saying is, I know exactly what I'm doing. And that is true every day. That God knows exactly what He's doing. If you got your Bibles, just turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. I always... 
tell you the background of Jeremiah 29 11. Today we're just going to read the background so, you, so that you can see it. On the pages of Scripture, we'll <clears throat> pick up Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 4. Please listen to what God is saying. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is God speaking to those being carried away. He says, Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. Picture. Every family is torn apart. Husbands in one line, a man in one line, women in another line, children in another line. No guarantee that they are ever, ever come together again in, ca in captivity. God through the prophet says, when you go, I want you to build houses. I want you to live in them, plant gardens. I want you to be married and have sons and daughters. I want you to live your life in captivity. And I want you to pray for the peace of the city that has conquered you and brought you into captivity. That's what God is saying. This is context. He says, For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets or diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which, which uh, you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. And I have not sent them, says the Lord. When I read that, I say, it is possible for me and my understanding and my concepts, my philosophy, my building of the understanding that I have about how God should work and what God should do, for me to become so blind that I find myself resisting the Holy Spirit like the prophets did in the day of Jeremiah. And God said... Lay down your arms and stop fighting. Way back in Samuel, the Lord told Saul, I want you to kill every single person in this army. And because he was disobedient, God removed him from being king. Later on, God says through Jeremiah the prophet, you are going into a time of captivity. This is my plan. It is my design for your lives. Lay down your arms. Solomon, the wisest man ever, who struggled in his relationship with God, especially toward the end of his life, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. Are you familiar with it? In Ecclesiastes, I'm excited, Fritz is going to be studying that on Sunday nights after the first. Um, he says, there is a time for everything under heaven. We allow our philosophy to say it, it's always going to be this way. We always take up arms and fight. You know there's times where God says lay down arms and stop. And if I have that philosophy and that's the only thing that's guided me and that is the bias through which I study the pages of scripture, I can find myself 
resisting what the Holy Spirit's doing, and as a result, leading other men and other women and families to death because we won't listen to what God is doing. Because we already think we know. You know how hard it is to teach someone who already knows it all? Probably some of us have had to do it. If you coach, I guarantee you've had to do it. It's the same way with God wanting to move and work in our life. Well, let's look as we continue through. It says, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Listen, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Get the context. And God wants us to be responding to His Holy Spirit. Why is it that the Lord for the children of Israel took them to Egypt before He put them in the promised land? Listen, it's simple. He took them to Egypt so that they would learn to be dissatisfied with the world. And then when they went from that to the promised land so that they would be satisfied in the place where God was bringing them. But in order for them to become dissatisfied with the world... God had to take them to the place where they were in the world and then take His hands off and wait. And just let it happen. What does the Bible say about a brother? A man who calls himself a brother, who continues to live his life in sexual immorality. The Bible says, have nothing to do with him. Put him outside of the church and into the world for the destruction of the flesh that his soul might be saved. Why does the Bible tell us to do that? Because sometimes we have to learn to be dissatisfied with the world so that we will understand how to be satisfied with what God has given us. That I'm looking for a city that's not here. This place is not my home. I love stuff. I love stuff. I got stuff, Itis. I want stuff. I want, I, want a, I want another Harley again, like I used to have when I first came. I want to have... A, a, a nicer truck and a bigger house and a nicer place. I want stuff. I would love to have that stuff. But I learned enough about stuff to realize it doesn't matter how much of the stuff I have, it's not going to satisfy me. My satisfaction only comes only in my life. I am only satisfied when I am walking with Jesus Christ the way I ought to walk. And if there's something wrong in my relationship with Him, I am dissatisfied with everything. I'm dissatisfied with my wife. I'm dissatisfied with my house. I'm dissatisfied with my kids. I don't like nothing because my life is out of balance with the Lord's. What is that? It's a famine in my land. And it's God saying, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Stop it. Respond. Respond to what I want to do and what I want to accomplish in your life. Throughout both of these stories, what do we see happening? We see two examples of men, uh, Joseph and Moses and, and his family. We'll talk a little bit more about them in just a second. But as we, as we look at them, what do we see? What happens? There's a time of trial. There's a change in circumstances. And the question that is asked of those men is, will you respond to the Holy Spirit or will you resist? And in each story, you see men 
who believe they're doing what God wants them to do, who are resisting the Holy Spirit and putting the man that God has chosen into a time of trial, preparation. God's still going to use those men. He still uses Joseph. He still uses Moses. Even though in both cases, they're rejected by the people they come to deliver. But the people that they come to deliver, those people, the, the circumstances change. Life gets a little more difficult. The world becomes a little more chaotic around them, yet they still desire for the world. How many times did the children of Israel walking across the, the, the desert land say, oh, I wish we were back in Egypt? How many times do we look for satisfaction in the stuff we can have? Christmas is a hard time of year for a lot of people. A hard time for me. I have a broken wonder. It wants all kind of stuff it shouldn't. I just got to get rid of it. So me and Kathy decided this year we're not doing it. Me and Kathy, we're not. Her and I, we're we're gonna we're doing stuff for the grandkids and stuff like that. But we're just not gonna feed into the chaos. I want to celebrate the birth of my Savior, and I want to celebrate all the good things about it, but I, I want to get caught up in, in all that garbage because it's not going to make me happy. Whatever's under the tree is not going to make me happy. You know what it's going to do two minutes after you get it? It's going to break. Once upon a time, I wanted this, <clears throat> I wanted this slot car race set. You guys ever seen those? And then, and then back, they had this slot car. It was the coolest thing ever because you could pass. So you could change lanes. Never worked, ever. Never worked. But they had it. And I thought, that's if I have that, I tell my parents, Dad, Mom, give me that. It's the only thing I ever want in my life. Any parents ever heard that before? It's the only thing I'm ever going to want. No, just give me this, give me this, give me this. So I got it. And I put it together. And I put the cars on the track. And I pulled the trigger, and that car was moving, man. And it come to the first corner, there's no slot. Nothing holds it on the track. It comes to the first corner and goes down into the living room. I got to slow down for corners now. Where's the fun in that? And I was so sure that that was going to satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't. The only place... I find satisfactions with the Lord. Am I responding or resisting to what God wants to do? Let's just look at, at Moses for a moment and we continue. It says in verse 20, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he, he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. Man, they, they had to throw their kids out. That new king came up and he said, I want you to... To destroy every male child. And so they did it. They hid Moses for three months, but eventually they had to let him go. So what they do, they took this, this little baby, three-month-old baby. I want you to imagine this. And they put him in a basket, and they lined it with pitch. And they wrapped him in blankets, and they put some, some straw over him or whatever to the lid, and they took that baby the baby that they loved, and they set him in a Nile River. Now, you can't picture the Nile? Okay, well, let's just go out here to the Snake River. 
Take your three-month-old baby, put him in a basket, line it with pitch, because the king says you can't have a male child, you've got to put him to death. Rather than killing him, they put him in that basket, they set him in the Nile, and they prayed. God, you have a plan for our son, and we cannot do anything for him right now. This is just the only thing we can imagine doing, so God, he's yours. And they let him go. And he floats down the river. you imagine that? Do you know that the choice to do that was responding to the Holy Spirit? Oh, there's no way God would ever call me to do such a thing with my child. I hope not. Do you realize that that was responding to the Holy Spirit? And the way God worked it out. Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby. His little sister is running along the, the shore watching the basket go. Probably a little freaked out. What's going to happen to my brother? She sees Pharaoh's daughter <coughs> uh, uh, pick up the baby. She goes running over to it. Pharaoh's daughter goes, Oh, the Nile has given me a child. So I'll call his name Moses. Receive from. She thought, Rah, the sun god gave me a baby. But there's Miriam, she's there on the on the shore, and, and she looks over and she says, You need a nursemaid for the baby you just found? And Pharaoh's daughter says, Yeah. You know anybody who's nursing a child? Yeah, actually, I, I know a lady. I'm going to go get her. So she runs and gets her mother, who just laid that basket in the river, probably weeping on the side of the river, thinking, what's going to happen? What's going on? I don't understand, God. Why would you put me through this? She comes and gets her mom and says, Mom, Pharaoh's daughter's got the baby. And uh, bye. she wants you to nurse him. So mom... Gets to nurse her child until he's weaned. God would never tell me to do something like that. Is your philosophy coming against what the Spirit of God is trying to do? Are you resisting? Are we resisting the Spirit or, or are we in a place where we're responding to Him? They responded. That's not, the, that's not the end of the story. And if I keep going, we'll never go home today. So I won't keep going. We're going to be in chapter 7 for a long time, in case you didn't know that. It's going to take me a long time to go through it. But the point is, don't you see the story Stephen's telling? He's talking to guys who are going to kill him. They hate his message so much, they will kill him. And his message is, God is doing something new. God is doing something, and, and you think God only fits in your box. And so you're fighting against what God's trying to do. Because we can never be in that place. Listen, please listen to what Paul said about the Bereans, because this is how. Well, I don't want you to start to think that somehow truth is subjective. 
and, and it all hinges on what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Paul said that the Bereans were more noble than them all. What made them most noble is that Paul taught them the word and they received the word with all diligence and then studied the scriptures to see if these things were so. Folks, our, our foundation of truth is the word of God. And our ability to understand what the Spirit is doing is to take what the Spirit is speaking to our hearts and apply it and line it up with the Word of God, and it will come together. You won't find yourself in a place as a false prophet telling the people to take up arms and fight because that's what God did back here, when in reality God is doing something different now. We have to. We have to be like the Bereans. How... My attitude radically changed in, in three days. Friday, I hear about what happened in Connecticut, and I think I'm stoked that the guy shot himself, and what a jerk, and should have had guns in the classroom, and we got to do something about all these crazy people. That's my attitude Friday. Saturday, I'm trying to piece together my heart breaks because I think at one time it was 10 kids then it ended up 20 20 little kids and this morning I read the news and all of a sudden everything changed because in that boy who did that I see my son That's Joe with a gun. Whole attitude changes. And I begin to understand that what's really needed is a change of human nature. And I I don't always know what to do for Joe. One thing that makes him happy is to be on a computer. And idiots put all kind of stupid stuff on YouTube. And a lot of kids can look at it and laugh. But Joe don't understand that it's bad or somebody exercising their freedom of speech. And so... It leads him places that I got to then deal with. I can take away the computer. And the nation can take away your guns. Or mine too. But none of that's going to change the nature of the man. You don't find it there. You'll find it somewhere. So what do we do? We throw up our hands and say, it's all going to circle the drain and we can't stop it and we can't do nothing about it? Listen, if you don't hear nothing else, know this. Jesus gave us one job. He said, you go and make disciples of all men. Because the only place, the only way your world is going to be safe for your kids 
is in a world that is ruled by Christ. How do I keep my high school safe? I do what the Israelis do. Go to Israel. Go out and watch them. They got parents. They take turns sitting with Uzis behind their kids. You see them on a on a, a, a field trip in town. They got parents all around the kids with Uzis. They're going to protect their kids. Yeah. Hope you're a better shot than the other guy. You know what really changed the world? Not how many bullets you got in your gun. How many people can you surround your kids with who love Jesus Christ? You want to change your community? How many people can you get in your community who love Jesus Christ? You want to make your world safe? How many people in your world can you get to love Jesus Christ? That's the only way to change it. We can regulate. We can withdraw. We can isolate. We can do a hundred things. But there's only one thing that's going to change our world. Respond to the Holy Spirit. Apply the truth of what God reveals in your heart through His Word. And then be obedient. Put your faith in God and endure. We change our world one life at a time. I give my kids the best I can give them. But it won't keep them safe from the neighbor they move in next to. It won't keep them safe from the guy who's driving drunk on the road that night. It won't keep them safe from all those things. So I'm going to do the best I can do by my kids and I'm going to keep them as safe as I can humanly possibly keep them. But my primary job has got to be to do what Jesus told me to do and make disciples of all men. I can be so inwardly focused that nothing in my world ever changes. I can be so outwardly focused that I lose everything on the inside. I can develop all kind of philosophies and ideas and I can find myself doing battle against what the Spirit of God is trying to do. So, how do we do it? The same way they always did it back then. You know, we read Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. Don't you remember they were in prayer? You want, you want to know how to get more room in the sanctuary? Have a prayer meeting. <laughs> kind of funny, but it's not so good, is it? Because if we want to see revival, we want to see things happen, we want to see things change, and we corporately have to be committed to prayer. Every revival, you study them, every revival on the planet started in corporate prayer. People gathering together and praying. You want to know what God wants you to do? Are you gathering every morning in prayer? Are you paying attention to the word every day? Are you constantly looking for him or, or are you caught up like the seed that the sower threw out who sprang to life so quick and was so busy about so many things that as soon as things got hard, it shriveled up. We need endurance. We need obedience. We need faith in God. And we always, always got to check our spirit 
Am I resisting what God's trying to do? Or am I responding to what God's doing? I always want to respond. But it's not a quick, flippant answer. I got to seek the Lord. I got to pray. I got to seek His face. I got to say, God, what do you want to do? And then I got to walk with Him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word, God. I thank you for your spirit's leading, God. I just pray, Father, that uh, God, the message you put in my heart came out. Whatever junk there was, it's me. Wash it away. Stuff from you, make it stick. Make it stick so it can't. I pray we would be men and women who desire to understand and know the whole counsel of God. Who want to line up our lives based on what you are doing now and how it is seen in the pages of Scripture. That you give us that foundation and you and you help us to move forward and to say, God, this is it's a direction you're going and I I want to do what you want done. In order for that to happen, something's got to change in me. I can't be married to my philosophy. I can't be married to my bias. I can't be married to what I think I know. 200 years ago, everybody thought they knew the world was flat. Uh, actually, it's 500 years now. I guess I'm getting old. Everybody thought the world was flat ready to kill people who said I was wrong. 200 years ago, we killed our president, bleeding him to death because we knew that what was wrong with him was in his blood. We think we know. Ever since the garden, Lord Jesus, when we came to the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we came to all this knowledge that we think we know how to use. But God, we can only use it in, in you, in Christ. Man, Lord, I just pray, God, I pray that we would desire to be led by your Spirit, moved by your Spirit, that we would have compassion according to your Spirit, that we would not be divided as to whether or not we think this or that should happen in church, but rather we would be united by the call of our Savior to go to make disciples, to baptize men, to teach them, to lead them, to help them grow. We would use our gifts and talents to accomplish what you want done. Help us, God. We are broken people living in a broken world, and we need you. We this morning are men and women filled with a variety of burdens and hurts and pains and struggles and doubts. But you are a God who can take all that away. But it's not going to be magic. It's going to be through obedience and faith and endurance. So God, you have your way with us. You 
have your way. You lead us, you teach us, you guide us, and you be glorified, Lord. Be glorified as we endeavor to live our lives for you. Following the example of Stephen and not the example of those who thought they knew. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close in a word.